Would you open your Bibles briefly to Isaiah chapter 40 and Job chapter 20? Isaiah 40 and Job 20. The subject that we are speaking on is the unique sovereignty of God. It's bigger than we are, the subject is. God allows us glimpses of it, allows us to see a measure of it, and we do our very best not only to grasp it and to understand it, but to teach it and live by it. And it's a huge and big subject because when you talk about the sovereignty of God, you're talking about God himself his supremacy, his power, his almightiness, everything that he is as God, it is as being sovereign in control and oversight of. All authority in heaven and earth is given unto God. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 40, without reading the whole chapter as we did last week, we'll look at verse 25 because God himself asked the question, he said, to whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? And if you read the whole chapter, you read that God does whatever he pleases, as he pleases, and only as he pleases in creation. And he can do that because it is his. The psalmist in chapter 24 last week, we said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all that are therein. Everything belongs to God. In Revelation 4 and verse 12, it says, And for thy pleasure, we are created. We are not created to dictate to God what is right or wrong that he does, or what he can or cannot do. We are here because he put us here for reasons that are within himself. We're here. And all that he is, he has created for himself. He does, as the Bible says, as he pleases in the kingdom of man. Nebuchadnezzar had to crawl on his hands and knees for seven years or grow like a beast for seven years until he understood one thing that it is God who rules in the kingdom of men, and he sets up over it whomsoever he chooses. I don't care who you vote for. God will cause to be in authority and in office whoever he chooses. That's Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, and also Daniel chapter 5 and verse 21. Because God is sovereign, he can do that because he is God. We may have commentary about it. We may say, well, that's not right, or that wouldn't be loving, or that's not fair. We can say that, but it's because we don't understand who he is. He can do whatever he wishes, and he does, and he will. And also, in Job chapter 22, 21, good advice, good counsel for all of us. Job says, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Well, here's what God will do. Thereby, good will come to you. 
we as human beings with human understanding see that as at whenever we want to. It's really up to us. At any time in our life we would like to acquaint ourselves with God, then we can do that. That God has to allow us to do that because we want to. And that's not the way the Bible teaches that God is. Your ability to acquaint yourself with God is at God's invitation. Unless God draws you, you cannot, by searching, find out God. He's in control of that, too. But for those he does draw, he says, acquaint now thyself with him. Know him. Listen to what is said about him. Let the stirring in your heart promote a study of him and a seeking after him. Find out who he is. And when you find him, he said, good will come to you because your whole life will be changed in such a way that his favor comes into your life, brings you into his favor, and good shall come to you. Just like Psalm 23, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life if the Lord is my shepherd. If he's my shepherd, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, I like that. But you see, God reveals himself in Scripture as almighty. We often, as Psalm 50 declares, we often see God as God said, he said, you thought that I was altogether like you. We have very much humanized God in our own personal opinions and ideas and theology about God. We have such an opinion that God is so much like us that our theology is based on that. Like, you know, well, God wouldn't want us to do that. Well, surely God wouldn't have us to do that. Well, it wasn't my fault. She's the one that left me, so therefore I have a right to remarry. And we base our theology and our arguments on human reasoning without regard to what the Bible says because we have made God human. He's like us. And he wouldn't do things like this. And, and he feels the way we feel. And he thinks the way that we think. We think. And the reason we have such a trivial, sovereign-less theology is because of human ideas about God. We think he's like us. And therefore, that's the way we live. And we argue things of that sort. Well, I don't think God would do this. Well, I don't think God would hold this against me. Do you? Well, I don't. Well, surely God is not going to judge me over this. But what does the Scripture say? We don't know. Because the fear of God doesn't give you that kind of freedom. The respect that God puts in a man's heart that has it is the kind of respect that would never want to offend God. We don't want to be offensive to him because he's righteous. He has to judge sin. He has to. And if we sin, then he has to judge us, but he doesn't want to. And the reason all of us are not judged because sin is such an easy thing to do because of a thing called chastisement, that God has a way of correcting you. He doesn't correct everybody because he doesn't have to. But he corrects those of you that he has chosen because if he leaves you to yourself and leaves you to your own ideas and to your own opinions and to your own reasonings and philosophies, He'll have to judge you because you'll perish. So he invades your life, if I could say that. He comes into your life and does something uniquely different than is, happens in anybody else's life. He saves you. He changes you. He corrects you. He chastises you. He does everything that has to be done so that at the end, he does not have to judge you.
Because if you live as the world, remember in 1 Corinthians 1, if God does not chastise us, then we will be judged along with the rest of the world. He can't ignore your sin when your sinning is the same as somebody else. You're both guilty. So the Almighty God has this way of being sovereign, uniquely sovereign. Nobody else can be. Only he is. And the Bible begins to reveal to us the awesomeness of this sovereignty and the littleness of man and the greatness of God. And when a man understands this or he acquaints himself with God and begins to see all of this, he, like Job, will say, you know, I've heard of you. I've had ideas about you, and I've been talking about me and you for the last whatever time Job's book was written, how long it took for his friends there to be with him. He said, but now you have revealed yourself to me. You have spoken to me, and I have seen you as you are, and I abhor myself. I repent. I put my hand, as Job said, to my mouth and speak no more, for I know nothing. But that's what happens when he became acquainted with God at God's desire to acquaint with him. So we study this subject. We begin to read all of these things. And we read that God is master and creator, ruler over all of his universe. He rules the animal world. He could make a fish, for example, or some kind of a sea creature to swallow Jonah. He could also make a fish to have tax money in his mouth. You got to like that. He could make a rooster to bray at a certain time in Peter's life. He is able to make a dumb donkey talk in man's language to a prophet. The donkey heard from God better than the prophet did. He did. God can do that in the animal world. Those things are impossible. God could make Peter to walk on the water, could make an axe head come to the surface, could make the walls of Jericho fall down because men shouted. God is able to do this. God is able to make the earth open up and swallow a lot of people. God can make fire come down and balls of fire from heaven come down to destroy the enemies of his people. Destroy them because he loved them, I guess. God can do all of this. God can make lice come from everywhere. He can make frogs come from everywhere. He can make all these things that happened, locusts, grasshoppers, to come all over Egypt and devour the land. He can do that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And who can say, why are you doing this? Because God says, who can stay his hand? The Lord does whatsoever he pleases in the kingdom of man. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat's prayer was this, no man can withstand you. I don't care what we want and how we want it, no man can withstand you and what you do. Now, we ended last week where I want to begin this morning, one of the most difficult subjects in Scripture that is, at least in a study of theology, man's relationship to God, has to do with man's will or the freedom of man's will. We can't cover it in a month of preaching. I'm just going to highlight it. How can you speak of the sovereignty of God and his almightiness and his rule, doing whatsoever he pleases, and having man on this earth who we understand is a morally responsible creature having volition or will 
is man free to choose in this world whatever he pleases, or is he restricted or restrained from doing whatever he pleases? Are we free or not? Or are we little machines down here, little things that God just says things to and we have no will in the matter? If we have no will in the matter, then what good is it to try to be saved? For example, if God saves whoever he pleases, and he does, we call it election, that God's choice from the foundation of the world as to who will be his people is his choice. We say, well, that's not fair. Well, who says it's not fair? Can he not do as he pleases? Did he not rebuke his disciples one time when they said, he has 10 already. You're giving the little bit to the guy that's got 10. That's not right. Remember, Jesus said, is it not right for me to do whatever I wish with what is mine? Who are you to tell me what is fair and what is not fair, what is right and what is not right? Again, God does whatever he pleases. And as regard to being saved and my will and, and all of that, God has chosen to save men through the gospel by the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word is where conviction comes from. It's where you get stirred about your sins, and it's the time of godly sorrow in your life, godly sorrow, sorrow from God towards you for the sorriness of our sins. And God does give us a chance, opportunity to respond to him. He doesn't have to. God is under no obligation to give his mercy, his love, or his salvation to anybody. He's not obligated to. There's nothing in Scripture that says he must do this or must be equal and fair. Who said it was fair to choose Israel of all the nations in the world? Who said it was fair for the one supreme God to make one nation only his people? and have no regard for all the other nations and all the other people in the world, just Israel. And they were the least of all nations. They were a nation inside of a nation. They were slaves in Egypt when he called them. They proved to be stubborn and stiff-necked, difficult, hard-headed people, but God made a choice. Is it fair? Is he not allowed to be partial? He was partial with you. He didn't have to save anybody in this room, and nobody in this room got saved because you just thought it would be a neat thing to do. He saved you not because there was something in you that would be good for his church. He didn't look at you and see something that he thought was deserving of eternal life, for there was nothing there. Nothing. The Bible describes us as being dead in sins. Man is morally responsible for his actions. He was made in the image of God. He was given things to do. He was to be a keeper in the garden. He was told not to eat of the fruit of one tree, but he was to keep the garden. That's all he had to do. Man can obey. He can quench. He can resist. He can rebel. He can deceive. He can pout, he can mourn, he can quit, he can faint, he could give up, he could draw back, he could turn around, he could be disinterested, he could fold his arms, he could stop his ears. 
God has given man the freedom to do that. You can do that. He's a morally responsible being. He can follow. He can trust. He can commit his way. We're held to that. If we have no will and it's not in some measure free, we can't do anything. We're just little mechanized humans. But we're all individually responsible with our lives as to what we do with our wills, every one of us. Because this is how God put us in this earth to live, by our choices, by our wills. And having done that, man becomes morally responsible. Now, here's what happens to man. In the garden, when Adam sinned, he disobeyed God. God said, this one particular tree, leave it alone, don't eat of it. Remember that? Now, the devil, who's the tempter, had only one law to turn against Adam, and you know the story well. And that's the one temptation he was able to use against Adam. And the lust of the eyes, Adam began to see something, and once he saw it, there was a stirring within him to be curious Curious, boy, curiosity has ruined millions of lives. Wonder what it would taste like. And the devil said, doesn't it look good? And then begin to use reason, you know, well, why would God create everything and say it is good and then have this and what is good to be bad? And so man began to think like that. He began to reason as though God thinks like he does. Yeah, why would God create the world and say it's good and then create a tree that looks like the other trees, has different fruit, but it looks like everything else? And why would that be bad? I mean, why would such a terrible thing like death, whatever that is, there's never been any death. How could a man partake of something that God said was good and die for it? It just doesn't make sense. What kind of God do you serve? And that's what has gotten a lot of men in trouble and caused a lot of atheism in this world is human reasoning, human philosophies. And the devil plays on this because that's the way a natural man's mind thinks. The devil was able to beguile a mind, to distort and twist and the things that God said of a man's mind. Even the devil tried to tempt Jesus. Well, doesn't the Bible say if you throw yourself down, no, nothing's going to happen and all that kind of stuff? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because you see, that's where the devil works. That's how he works on us. We get in trouble with credit because we've got to have something. Our heart says you can't afford it. You don't have that much money. This would be a, a burden to you. Oh, but I've got to have it. Men lust because of the curiosity of wondering what that would be like. We eat what we don't need to eat. It's a seafood diet. We seafood and eat it. We eat because something is curious about how good that would be if I could load my gut with that. We buy things that we don't need because we are convinced we would look good. And then this whole business of self-serving, selfishness, which we get the word iniquity all about, begins to invade and conquer a man's whole being. And he sins. Remember last week we said this in Psalms 58 and verse 3, and then Psalm 51 and verse 5, that a man begins to go away and become a sinner from the womb? 
Or as Psalm 51 says, in sin did my mother conceive me? But while I am a baby birthed into this world is blameless in the sense that the baby has never made a choice, has never done something that is wrong. Nevertheless, the nature of sin is in the baby because the sin that the parents had, the nature of sin is passed on. And concerning sin, it is a destroyer. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray and there is none what? What does that mean? We read it and we forget it. God says, looking on all of creation, all of human beings, he said, all of you, like a bunch of sheep, have scattered from me. You've gone away from me. You have no relationship with me. You've scattered from me. There is none right. Nobody is right. Nobody talks right, lives right, and does right. And when anybody gets bothered about what they're doing wrong and they want to kind of coax me a little bit, they're not doing it. They don't come to the Lord because they want to be forgiven. They come to the Lord because they want to feel better about their lives. They're still wicked. Or as the psalmist said, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Even his plowing. Even the sacrifice that a sinner brings to God, whether it's money or whatever he does, so-called for God, is an abomination. That's what your Bible says. So that there is literally nothing that a sinner can do to be right. There is nothing he can do that is right. Because again, his motives are wrong. In Christendom, when is faith right? If faith doesn't work by love, what good is it? If you had all faith so that you could remove mountains, but it's not motivated by your love for God and serving him, but in maybe making a show of yourself or getting a bigger ministry, what good is it? What good is it to cast out demons and heal the sick and all of this kind of stuff if at the end you perish? Oh, there's something bigger in this walk that we have than just obeying little rules and walking by little schedules. It's a heart that loves God and serves him. And everything that flows from that is right. The motivations and the thoughts of your heart. That's what God sees. And he knows that all we like sheep have gone astray. There's none right, not even one. We like to convince ourselves that we do a lot of good deeds, and therefore God ought to at least consider that. And yet the reason we did the good deeds is to impress God or to feel better about ourselves or to impress other people. That's why it's still wicked, even your good deeds. Oh, we don't like to hear that. I know that. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands there is none that seeks after God, none. Now, if there's one or two that do because they want to, then this isn't true. But if no man can, then no man does. No man can because no man does. The only reason a man can seek after God is because of godly sorrow. If God doesn't do that to a lost man, a lost man remains lost. And if he dies in his sins, he died because of his sins. That's why he died. If a man is saved, he is saved because God saved him. That's why he's saved. 
It's all of God. Again, it does make things get quiet. It does make us surrender our mouths to silence. Because we have to think about this. What kind of God are we serving? Let me tell you something. He's bigger than you thought he was. He is more holy than you thought he was. His line is a lot narrower than you thought it was. And yet he's more loving than you realized he was and long-suffering. Some of you, you thought you were let go and you quit. You were just done with all this stuff and he drug you back, didn't he? He brought you back. Why? He didn't have to. Look at the others who left and didn't come back and never will, but you did. Why? Why? I don't know. Because it was not within me. It wasn't something in me that says, poor Tom. Oh, bless his heart. He could have let me go too, but he didn't. I think from the foundation of the world, when he said Tom Hamilton, he's never forgotten Tom Hamilton. Tom Hamilton squirmed and wiggled and fretted and complained and fussed and cried and bawled and squalled, but God never forgot me because he's bigger than fretting and squalling and bawling and has a way to deal with fretting and squalling and bawling and all that because he alone can make me what I ought to be. Nobody else can, and he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do that. I'm telling you, folks, God doesn't have to do all these things that people says he does. But our wills, our freedoms, Ephesians 2, again, we're going to get used to this verse before long. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Wherein, in time past, what were you? Wherein, in time past, you were dead in trespasses and sins? Now, if you were dead, it says, and you hath he quickened, verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were what? dead. What does dead mean? Listen to me. Dead means not alive. You're not biologically dead. You still function and do and go and still make decisions and you see and you think and you eat and sleep and work. You're not dead in the sense that you need to be buried in a ground, but from God's side, as he looks at you, you are as though you are dead. Your voice is silent. Do you hear me? I hope you do. Like I told you last week, Spurgeon himself said, there's no doctrine that man needs to grasp more than the, the doctrine that God is master over his creation. And he does with it and in it whatever he wants to. And the very best thing that man can do as far as his opinion of it is to put his hand over his mouth lest he accuse God of being unrighteous. And so Ephesians 2, verse 2. Wherein, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our manner of life in times past, in the lust of our flesh, the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Now, let me ask you something. How free is your will in this kind of life to walk with God? It's not. 
who told us that sometime, maybe when you get too old to sow your wild oats, I used to think I could. Well, someday when I get old, I'll get saved. You can't get saved when you want to. That's not possible because a dead man can't make right decisions. A man's will is in bondage to whom he serves. Take those two things he said in verse 3 there about the lust of your flesh, the desires of your flesh and of the mind. Not too terribly long ago here, we talked about man being a three-part being. Actually, it's two, but there are three parts. Man has a mind, and man, with his mind, he is an academic, rational, thinking, reasoning creature. He sees, he thinks, he figures out, he makes decisions. Some do it better than others, but he still is a product of his thinking. As a man thinketh, so is he. So you are what you're thinking. That's just biblical. But the mind has a great role in the way you live because with your mind, you think. That's why God says all your thinking is wrong, and it's what got you in trouble. Remember Romans 12, 2, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. It's the world out there that has engaged you. It's giving you something to feel. It's giving you something to pursue. It's giving you something to desire. And all the things out there, the effect of all the stuff in the world is to turn you away from God. All we like sheep have gone astray. In verse 2, we walked according to what? The course of what? This world. And therefore, we're dead. And if we are dead, we can't do what's right. Because sin has conquered us. We have a mind. We have senses. We feel. We see. We taste. We touch. We smell. Does that affect your life? What about porno? What is pornography? You don't even have to have your eyes open to be afflicted with lust. But oftentimes you see things and then you feel things. What about drugs? Drugs make you feel. Drugs alter your mind so that you are something else, demonic. What about things like gambling, stealing, and lying? It's all about lust, isn't it? You want something that's not yours? What about the preacher and deception and deceiving people? Isn't it about lust? I want your approval. I want your money. I want whatever you've got. I want to try to entice you to give it. Isn't it lust? Of course it is. It's lust. The will of a man, which is in the spirit, is dead. That is, this is where God is supposed to be. And the mind has the will because as a man thinketh, so is he. I am the creature, the product of my thinking and my choices. My choices are this or this. As if Paul says in Ephesians 2, your Bible, verses 2 and 3, especially verse 3, the fleshly urges you have. What about the urge to do something else instead of church? Is that an urge? Is it a temptation? 
or is it okay? How do we dismiss ourselves from loyalty? Don't we compromise and bring God down and he understands your reasoning? Doesn't? Well, I mean, come on now. I mean, after I don't think God, well, why, you know, blah, 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 God would, wouldn't he? Who said God would say that? The mind is corrupted. It has to be renewed. The mind of Christ. We're dead down here. A man who's sinful has no connection with the Lord. How can he do right? His will is bound as a slave to his senses and his carnal nature. His will, his volition is a slave to his carnal nature. Look in Romans 6. You're going to have to turn to these. Now we're going to teach for a while, okay? But this is supposed to be church. I know it. I know it. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Measure yourself with this. Know ye not that to whom it's a being of some sort. Doesn't the Bible say whom? Is there a whom behind lust? Is there a whom behind atheistic reasonings, carnal thinking? Is there a whom behind that? Is there somebody inspiring you to think that way and to feel like that? Isn't there? And isn't it human nature to want something more than what you've got? Well, look at this. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants, his, that's a he, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, or if you're a Christian, of obedience unto righteousness. What does sin do? Sin brings what? Death. Does sin destroy? Let me read you this. I know you've heard this one before. This is James chapter 1 and verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, if I am a sinful creature... I may be a good daddy, good husband, work, make decent money, make logical decisions in this world, have a good name in the neighborhood. But if I'm a sinner, if I'm a sinful creature, separated from God by choice, what good thing can I do? I pat myself on the back for what I think is good, and I expect God to at least consider that I'm doing some good things. But why am I doing it? to get brownie points. I'm still wicked. Remember we taught a sermon once on your sin will find you out? Eventually God will bring you, if you're his, to the valley of decision, and he'll expose you. He'll expose you for your hypocrisy, for your ugliness, for your deceit, your lying and your cheating and your misrepresentation. He'll deal with this about all of that because if he doesn't deal with this, he has to judge it and we're doomed. Because sin is death. Sin is death. Remember Isaiah 59 and verse 2? We read it the other day. For your sins and your iniquities have separated you from God that he will not hear. Well, if he does not hear, what good prayer are you going to pray? What noble prayer can you pray? 
He doesn't hear you. Well, why wouldn't he hear me? Because of sin. You mean picking up sticks on the Sabbath day is sin? Come on, I have to have a little fire. Did somebody die in the Bible because they picked up sticks on the Sabbath? And they died because of that? I wonder what that means about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, help me to fear you as a man should fear the Lord. And to have lodged in my heart not only devotion, but holiness. Who speaks of holiness today? Who speaks of any reason for being holy? Or the work of holiness? That's not popular. The subject I'm speaking on is one of the most unpopular subjects in Christendom. Tongues is pretty bad for some people, but this subject messes up even the tongue talkers because it makes God who he is. I mean, it makes him altogether God. Romans 8, 7, if you look across the page, the carnal mind is enmity against God for he is not subject to the law of God. Does your Bible say that? If the carnal mind, if the flesh-laden mind is not subject to the law of God and indeed sets you against God as an enemy, then what freedom does your will have? Your will is bound to your senses. Your will is bound to your mind. You can do nothing else. You serve what you think. You serve what you feel. You serve your ideas and your opinions and the way you figured it out, or you are serving lust of some degree. Well, then how free is your will to one day just get saved? You can't because you're dead. Remember this verse in 1 Corinthians 2 and 14? It says, for the natural man, what is a natural man? A man without God. A man who by nature walks according to the course of this world. Now, concerning him in Ephesians 2, he said, For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Does your Bible say that? Then a natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit. Drag him to church. Put him on the front row or her. Plead with him. Cry with him. You cannot make them believe. If they go forward, they usually go forward because of your insistence. And they don't last long. And we know that. We've seen it our whole life. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. And this is why. For they are foolishness unto him. You know why it is foolishness? Because his carnal, fleshly mind has brought his concept of God down into the realm where he lives, and this is how he sees God, and you're messing it all up with Scripture. The Word of God and this work of the Spirit messes all of this up until now you're really upset with this preacher because he's making God out to be some supreme being, some monarch. And he is. It is by our thinking that we have corrupted ourselves. And we have lived by our thinking, and therefore sin has conceived, has found a lodging place, and we become sinners, dead unto God, unable to receive the truth the Spirit of God brings. That's what he said. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither 
Now look at this. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they can only come by the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood, spiritually seen or spiritually perceived. Only the Spirit of God can bring him that. But he's not a candidate for that because he's lost. He's a sinner. He has a carnal and a natural mind. He is warped in all of his thinking. That's why his mind again has to be renewed. Everything is messed up that brought God into a different realm than what God is. He doesn't know God. Like God said, there's none who understand. We complain about God. We have ideas about God. We create some superficial, artificial theology about God because we don't understand the true God, the Almighty God. And we are so offended. Denominational mentalities are so offended at the sovereignty of God. Sovereign grace. A lot of people use that. They're so offended by that because it makes man what man is. It makes God what God is. Listen at this. A man's will is only free to determine the kind of sinner he's going to be. The will of a lost man his will is only free to sin. He can do nothing else. As I said before, even his sacrifice is sin. Even his whatever he does for God is sin. He is a slave to his sin. We don't like to hear it, but it's true. He is a slave to his sin. He has no hope, and he is without God in the world. That's why God sent the gospel, because that's the condition that lost people are in. Without hope, listen, hope is expectation. You can't even expect. You can't even do something and maybe think that he doesn't even have that. Because the bondage of his will is to his baser nature, is to his carnal, sinful ways. He is a servant of sin. And as long as he stays that way, he will die. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. So what can happen? What's going to happen to him? Well, he's going to perish. You can put a period there. We can go home. We've just explained a little bit about the condition of mortal man in this created world. He's a sinner and he's lost. And nobody in this world is able to save him. That is, no created person, no system of man, no church, no speech, no crawling over broken glass. Nothing can save him. Nothing. He cannot save himself. He cannot do anything to save himself. He cannot even make himself better. Even his attempts at being better is an abomination. That's Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, verse 8. And Proverbs 21, verse 27. You can do nothing. Even on your best day at going to church and trying to clean up your life, you can't do better. You're trying to clean up your life because you're miserable and you don't want to feel miserable and you're hoping if you go to church, you won't be miserable anymore. And therefore, your motivation for cleaning up your life is not to serve God, it's to feel better. 
Therefore, it's wickedness. He can't be anything else. So what do we do? So what happens? All right, turn to the Gospel of John. I don't know if you all take notes or if you think about these things much, but think about this. Only a sovereign God can save a man. No man can be saved unless God saves him. Now listen, God does not have to save anybody. But in order to save somebody, he made a way for those somebodies to be saved. He sent Jesus to the cross. And you know the story, the Lamb of God, God's Lamb. Day of Atonement, there were two of them. One was sent into the wilderness as a scapegoat. The other one was killed, or his blood was sprinkled for the make atonement for the people. God himself provided a lamb for his people. His name was Jesus, the lamb of God. And this lamb, willingly, without any opposition, went to his death he said, you can't take my life, but I can give it. And he gave it. Now, there's a basis for all of us who are lost and undone in our sins. Now there is a basis for a holy God to righteously deal with these fallen creatures. How can he do it? Well, you take Jesus and said, here is the way and the truth and the life. Only through Christ can a man have access to God? He will be the only mediator between God and man. Sinful man can have his sins removed. He can be reckoned as righteous, treated as righteous, if he will believe in Jesus Christ and commit himself to him. Now, there we are. We're confronted with that. And here's Jesus, the Savior, who walks into many, many churches, many prayer meetings, and many gatherings somewhere to some degree. He has walked in. Surely of a couple of people there that knew the Lord and where two or more gathered, he's there. So here is Jesus, the one who alone and only can save. And we treat him as just a story. Just a story. Isn't that what Easter is about? It's about a story. Isn't this time of year the away in a manger, no crib? Isn't it all about a story? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Here comes Santa Claus, and there goes Rudolph. That's what the world thinks about Jesus. He's a sale on Friday night. He's some kind of a play in which some mortal man acts like he's Jesus in a, some big something somewhere that everybody gets to come and go, oh, they're not admiring the work that was done there or who that was. It's about how well it was presented, the pageantry of it all. That's how we treat Jesus. It's not like bowing at his feet or bowing the head and saying, I'm not worthy of you. But here's Jesus. Now, here's what the Bible says about Jesus. John 6 and verse 44. Here's what God does. No man can come to me except. Now, listen to me. No man can just come to the Lord. 
I don't care how bad his drugs are, how bad his marriage is, how bad his alcohol is, how bad his spending is. No matter what his misery is, no man can just come to the Lord. So then how does he come? No man can come to the Son except the Father which sent him. Do what? Draw him. Is that the only way he can come? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Can that be true? If the Father doesn't give them, can they come? Listen to me all. If the Father does not point out somebody, specific, specifically pinpoint somebody as somebody he's going to give to Christ to be in his church and under him and serve him, can that person with anything else, can they come to Christ? No. They can go to church. Jesus once said about the great wedding, he said, how did you get in here without a garment? Remember that? He said, well, I wore what they were wearing. He said, I don't know you. And they took him out and gnashing of teeth. He wasn't even allowed out. So no man can come except the Father draws him, and everybody that the Father gives will come to him. And the verse you all know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace... You ought to know this by heart. For by grace, what's grace? That's right, unmerited favor. For by grace, where's the unmerited favor come from? God. He alone, uniquely, sovereignly, only has that. He alone can give that. So when he gives it, you can come because when he gives it, something happens in your life that wasn't there before. In your ugly, nasty life, something that wasn't reasonable to happen begins to happen. What's happening? God has decided to choose you to be his own. And you in your honoriness, in your wickedness, begin to see things differently than you've ever seen it in your whole life. And it begins to bother you that you've been such a decrepit, depraved, wicked, corrupt creature. You're never bothered by that before. Why now? Why on June 30th, 1968, on the second verse of Just As I Am, did I begin being so overwhelmed by my wickedness and yet being humbled by his willingness for me to come and receive Jesus? No wonder we weep. No wonder godly sorrow brings tears. We see it. It becomes real, a revelation of what we are and who in his loving kindness is. He didn't have to do this. It's grace. He didn't see something in me that was worth saving. He didn't see anything in any of us that was worth loving. Then why then does he love? He doesn't have to. Why is he merciful to us? He doesn't have to be. We have no right to his mercy. We have no right to his love or his grace. How then do we partake of it? Because he offers it to you. I don't care what meeting you go to. You can give your invitation hymns if you want to, and whoever will come forward. You, you can't do that either. Oh, you can do it. But you can't say, people, how do you know God wants to save everybody? That's his business. We preach the gospel. God says that way. If a man wants to be saved, he'll be saved. They will. Keep on going. I'm not done. For by grace, through faith, are you saved, and that not 
of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest you should boast. Well, that is clear. Would you look in Jeremiah 24 and Ezekiel 11? Can you find two at once? I want you to see this. God, open our hearts and eyes to see this. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 24. And I will give them a heart to know me. Does he? Can you if he doesn't? We are indebted to God this morning. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They can't know that. And that they shall be my people and I will be their God. When? When he gives you a heart to know this. He said, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. If you say we hide your word in our hearts, we mean that by the grace of God, by the work that God does, the word is hidden in our hearts. No other way can get there. You see, when God saves us, that which was dark and lost becomes alive. We hide his word in our hearts, and the word begins to be our life. We quit thinking the way we used to think. We start thinking a new way. We begin to crucify the flesh with the affections and lust. Because if we don't do that, then can you really say you were one of his? Because that's what his people do. Do you think that God says, I will take my own and I will transform them and then them not be transformed? If he said they're going to be a certain kind of people, are they going to be? And if you look at people and they're not being the way God wants them to be, what can you say? Oh, you're hard. I'm not hard. Hearts are hard. Anybody can learn this thing. Anybody can learn how to walk and sit and do all of this. But this is the way of life. Look at Ezekiel 11 and verse 19. This is uniquely something that a sovereign God alone can do. There's four I wills here. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of the flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Who else can do that? Verse 20, here's the reason he does that. So that you can be a member of a church. So that you can teach Sunday school class and carry little Gospels of John in your pocket. No. The whole reason for God transforming a person's life, the whole purpose of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the work that the Spirit does, the whole purpose of that is to change your whole course of life so that you live not the way you were, but you have found a new way of living, a way that God can honor and not judge. That's why we have to change. That they may walk, verse 20, in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And in this way, they will be my people. And for that reason, I will be their God. It's being faithful. Teach faith. Teach faithfulness. Teach my people to obey my voice, and I will be your God. You walk in all the way that I've suggested. 
all the ways that I've commanded, that it may be well with you. What about man's will? Turn to Philippians 2 as we commence closing. Well, you mean then, Brother Hamilton, that man's will is only subject, can only do what's right as God does it? That's exactly right. Did you know that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turneth it whithersoever he wishes? That I could care less this morning what my will is. The only thing that's going to work is his will. Now, while I am free to do a lot of things, I can sin, and I can sin this way, or I can sin that way. One thing I cannot do, I cannot, with my choices and my will, keep God from doing what he's going to do. Because my will's not that free. I'm free enough to die because of my sins. And remember, all men are lost. Are they not? All men are lost. There's no law that says God has to save anybody. And if God touches no man's life and they all die, why did they die? Did they die because God didn't touch them or die because of their sins? They die because of their sins, don't they? If all men are sinners, all men are lost, dead in sins, and God leaves them all alone, what happens to all of them? They perish. Then what hope is there for any of them? Is for God to do something to whomsoever he pleases. Well, Brother Hamilton, I don't know if that's entirely fair. You will in just a minute. We're almost done. Philippians 2 and verse 13, concerning your will and the way you live in this life. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do what? Look at it again. See yourself there. God is at work in me to reveal his will to me so that I, in response to him, can be a doer of his will and not just a hearer of it. In this way, I walk with God, and God becomes my God. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you know what? He determined to do this before there was even a world for it to be done in. Before there was ever a world. You're in Philippians. Go one book back to the left to Ephesians again. Chapter 1, verse 4. It's talking about Jesus Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him when? What your Bible says. Then... If you didn't choose God, John 15, 16, you didn't choose him, but he chose you. When did he choose you? Now, religion today, man's carnal religion today says, well, God put us all on this earth. And while we were walking down here on this earth, he knew that some of us were going to be convicted. He knew that some of us weren't going to be convicted. And those that he saw would be convicted, he saved and he chose them. Now, that's nonsense. There's nothing foreknown about anything there. You can't foreknow possibilities. You foreknow actualities, things that are actual. God knew and planned and ordained times and destinies and everything else. And for all those people that didn't want to choose God, is God able to make you choose him? Could he? He doesn't have to, but could he? Is there a heathen in this world that God can't save? Could he make a Nebuchadnezzar repent? He did I mean, a wicked to the nth, super nth, mega nth degree. Turn his eyes up to God and say, you are God. 
There's nobody in this world whose heart is so hard that God cannot send godly sorrow in there and break it. How many of you were wicked? Some of us I know more than others because some of us were more sinful, but where sin is sin, but some are more in degree worse than others. I was the worst of sinners. Chief. And what a humbling experience it was for God to save me. I thought I got saved when I was a freshman in college, and then I came home and messed up. And I figured by then, my mind, this is my mental, I figured I was done because God gave me a chance. I quit. I messed up, and I'm done. I had a lung disease. I'm dying. I'm coughing up blood. I know I can't live long like this on a scholarship trying to play basketball. The whole thing was a joke. I thought I'm dying. I went to church every Sunday when I was in college. My mother sent me $10 a week. That was a lot of money. That's a little over a dollar a day on campus. I've saved $1 every week put in church. My buddies used to say, you get four beers for a dollar. I said, I'm afraid not to. Just wicked to the nth degree in my sinfulness. And one day he singled me out to save me. I wept. I cried like a baby. I did not deserve it. I still don't. I am grateful for grace. I am grateful for mercy. And God helped me, having received such a bounty from heaven, may I be merciful and gracious towards other people, even as you have been merciful to me. May I be kind and not rewarded for it in this life. May I learn to leave it on the front door and go knock on the back door, whatever you do, so nobody knows it. May all the applause be for heaven and not this earth. God is so good. God is so good. Before the world began. Do you see it? Before there was a world, he chose you not to live in indifference and complain about things in this world and be afraid of tomorrow. He chose you to live on his terms, and only he can show you how to do that. That's what the preaching of the word is for. Amen. Look at verse 5. Having, there's that word the church doesn't like, having predestinated us, predetermined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? I'm asking you this morning, why did God pick you? If he's picked you, if he did, if he has, why? Because <laughs> this is good pleasure. Jesus said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Remember him saying that? Luke 10, I thank thee, Father, thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. The next verse, the next word, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Why do some have eyes to see and not see? Why do they have ears to hear but they can't hear? Because the Bible says God has shut their ears. Why cannot certain centuries or preachers sound the alarm? Because they are dumb dogs. Oh, that sound bad? How about Jesus saying to a woman who had a terrible need, it's not right to give children's bread to dogs. Who are we serving this morning? A God who drug your miserable hides out of the miry clay and set them on a rock and gave you peace and joy and has opened the windows of heaven to you and has an inheritance reserved in heaven just for you. 
You just endure to the end. That's all you got to do. Hold on. Paul said this, 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. God did it because of something within himself, the saving of us, the calling of us, the creating of us, the putting us on this earth at this time in history. We're here for that. We couldn't have been born any other time. We are here today because it was predestined to be here. Well, somebody said, if that's true, why even try? That doesn't sound fair. In closing, Romans. And a awe settled over the room. Romans 9. Oh, Romans 9. Only Romans 11 challenges me more. Romans 9. Is it fair? Well, here's what your Bible says in Romans chapter 9. The whole chapter is, to say the least, inspiring. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, is that word in your Bible? That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Is it fair? Doesn't sound fair because you wouldn't do that. And you don't think that's right. Because we hold God to our views and our concepts. But he said, Jacob I loved, and Esau have I hated. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is it fair? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? What does he end up by saying? God forbid. God can do nothing wrong. God is always right. He's always fair. He's always just. You can't put rules on God that he has to do what you think and therefore be wrong. For he saith to Moses, tell me if it's right. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Is it fair? He can do that because he's God. He can have mercy on whoever he wants to, which implies he doesn't have it on everybody. But he doesn't have to. We're not entitled to that. So then, verse 16, it is not of him that willeth or who wants nor of him that runneth or tries, but it is of God who shows mercy. Scripture said about Pharaoh, for this reason, I raised up Pharaoh to show my power in him. Did he judge Pharaoh? Did he harden his heart? Did he turn the heart of Pharaoh to do wickedness and evil so that God, in judging him, might declare his greatness? 
Is it fair? You think that's right that God would create somebody for that reason? It is fair because everything he does is right. Last time I checked, he's never asked me what he ought to do next. Verse 19, well, then the men will say to God, well, then why could he find fault with anybody? Because everybody's a sinner. The whole world lies in sin. Why does he find fault with sinful people? Because their sin have turned them away from God. They have all gone astray. That's where we started this message. And he can stop and leave you alone. But you know what God did? If he has done it, if he has, he could reach down with that divine ability and divine power. He could invade your life, first of all, with sorrow and anguish over your sins. He could give you a gift. We call it faith. And that faith enables you to believe that this is God. Then he allows you to open your mouth and say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And because you said those things he told you to say, he responds and says, okay. He said in Ezekiel about prayer, he said, I will let you ask me to do the things I've already planned to do. And you'll ask, and, and I'll do it because you asked, but I already planned to do it. All God has to do is leave creation alone, and they're righteously judged. I mean, their sin is judgment. And if here comes a little Tom Hamilton, he's a part of that, and God says, I'm going to save him. Why? <laughs> Something within himself, I don't know. There I am. And I'm praying, Lord, pick all the rest of my children and all my grand, get the whole little gang. I'm going to have a clan for it, so I want you to save. I don't want any, any, anybody carrying my seed to die. I don't want any of them to perish, none of them. That's why we pray. We don't know what God's going to do tomorrow. We don't know about what's going on in anybody's heart. That's why we're called with our wills to make our calling and election sure. Because if we don't, we perish. Well, the whole subject of sovereignty brings us to the place where we get real still and real serious before the Lord and realize that it's not up to us. It's really up to God. And what we get to do is respond to him. And in that way, we will be blessed, kept, secured, made fast with the Lord. But if you become indifferent and you harden your heart, you become less than serious about this, you get all wrapped up in this world and the foolishness of it, you'll perish. I know you're here, and I'm glad you're here, but you'll perish. God is very serious. These are the last days. This is the calling of his people together. It's the clarion call that's gone out to say the time is coming, the bridegroom's coming. You better get serious now about your life because God has to judge the whole world. And you be ready. Remember, in Acts 13, 48, and as many as were appointed unto salvation believe.